Well, good morning, church family. Good morning. morning. This summer, we've been celebrating in the Psalms. But before we actually get to the Psalms this morning, I have a question for you. What do you think of when you hear the word celebrate? What images or feelings come to mind? For me, the first image that came to mind when I think of that word is a moment from this past spring when my kindergartners came running into my classroom with party hats on, screaming with big smiles on their faces, Happy birthday, Miss Johnson! And they threw confetti everywhere, and they were just dancing and jumping up and down in my room, delighted at their own surprise. <laughs> Five- and six-year-olds know how to celebrate. <laughs> um, maybe you also thought of a birthday celebration or... Um, a holiday or some sort of party that has that same sense of delight and excitement. It's interesting, though, because um, Merriam-Webster's definition of it, of celebrate, looks like this. To perform a sacrament or solemn ceremony publicly and with appropriate rites, like a priest celebrates mass. To honor an occasion such as a holiday, especially by solemn ceremonies or by refraining from ordinary business, like the nation celebrates Memorial Day. To mark something, such as an anniversary, by festivities or other deviation from routine. I don't know about you, but when I was reading this, I was kind of surprised at the serious tone that this definition had. They used the word solemn twice. But we've been defining celebration this summer um, as just being a bigger sense than just excitement and confetti and happy faces. Celebration has more weight to it than that. And we've been trying to paint a better picture of that this summer. We've been defining it as stopping together from our regular rhythms to acknowledge what is worthy of our attention. Even the Merriam-Webster's definition talks about um, an important part of celebrating as refraining from ordinary business or deviation from routine to mark something as significant. So celebrating involves pausing and acknowledging something or someone important. But why do we celebrate? Well, imagine if we didn't. What would happen? If we, what if we didn't set time aside to gather at Thanksgiving or set time to be together over Christmas or other holidays or birthdays every year? I wonder if we'd be so busy that we would, that we would miss out on occasions to see certain people that we wouldn't get to normally see in our lives. We wouldn't have time off work or school so I wonder if we would just plow through life, kind of forgetting to break for what's really important. I think we celebrate so that we don't forget. But positively put, we celebrate so that we can remember. And that's something that the Psalms talk a lot about. It's something that scripture in general talks a lot about. But what I love about the Psalms is that they don't just show us how to celebrate when things are really good and we're satisfied and we're happy. Um, but a lot of the psalmists are crying out and feeling frustrated and fearful. And even still, they find ways to, by the end of their psalms, turn and celebrate. And in Psalm 13 is an example where David starts out the psalm saying, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? But by the end of this song, which isn't very long, he says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing of the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. What causes that kind of 
shift, that kind of trust that he has. I think it's remembering. He stopped and he thought about how God has been faithful in the past, and that gave him the ability to shake him out of that place of fear. When we forget, we can lose sight of what is true about something or about someone. And we do this sometimes when we're texting. <laughs> you might send a text to somebody, like send a text to a friend and say, hey, want to hang out tonight? I miss you. Five minutes goes by and you haven't heard anything from them. And you're, That's fine, they're busy, it's okay. Ten minutes goes by and you start to feel a little insecure. Maybe they don't want to hang out with me. Maybe they don't miss me. An hour goes by, and now you're positive that they hate you and never want to see you again. <laughs> what happens to get us from there to there? Well, we start to get so consumed by those feelings of worry that it replaces all of the truth about what we know about how that person feels, and we get consumed by that worry. Texting is kind of a silly example of that. But what about the times that are really difficult? and it's really hard to convince yourself when it's something that's true. Sometimes we're in a season where remembering is so hard that it feels like you're walking up a mountain with 100 pounds on your back. Sometimes we're crying out for help, and we feel like the psalmist saying, are you even listening, God? Do you even see me? This is how the author of Psalm 77 felt. This psalm is raw and real, and it's full of aching questions in the midst of stress. Yet even in the midst of confusion and fear, he found a reason and a way to celebrate, to remember. My hope is that today we will see that pausing to remember who God is and what he's done gives us a new perspective to keep moving forward. I also just want to acknowledge this morning that while I know a lot of your stories, there's a lot that I don't know about what you have gone through or are going through. But my hope is that my words don't come across as a band-aid or as a three-step plan towards getting over your pain, um, but that this would be a, a time where we can listen together and see how we can learn from this psalmist as he pauses to remember and that it might even help us to just take one step in the direction towards moving forward in hope. This has been a really difficult year for me, um, and so I just want you to know that I am listening and learning alongside you this morning. Will you pray with me before we read? Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing us together this morning. It is good to be together. Thank you for your word, and I pray that you would work through it and that we would learn something new about who you are this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to read in Psalm 77, and I'll have it up here on the screen, but it's also on page 471 in the Black Pew Bibles. Psalm 77. For the director of music, for Jeduthun of Asaph, a psalm, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. 
I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. Your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. So there's a lot going on in this psalm, but we're going to just look at it in three parts today. And we'll first look at the distressing reality of the author of this psalm, and then we'll take a look at sort of the shifting perspective that happens in the middle of the psalm, and then we'll look at the story that helps the psalmist to move forward at the end. So let's look at this author. The beginning of the title of the psalm says, For the Director of Music for Jeduthun of Asaph, a psalm. So we know that this is a psalm of Asaph, and a lot of times when we think of the psalms, maybe you think um, in association with David, but David didn't write all of the psalms, and Asaph actually wrote a lot of them. Um, but what we know about it is that it's for the director of music, of music for Jaduthan. And he was actually appointed by David um, during David's time to, um, to lead the congregation in worship with music. And so we know that this, song, this psalm was actually used for congregational worship. It was something to actually lead the people in song. And in First Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 16, we hear that Asaph was also appointed by David, and he's a Levite who um, was supposed to minister before the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of the Lord to give thanks and give praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. And we don't know exactly what Asaph was going through in this psalm, but he lived during David's reign, so there's probably a lot of reasons why he would be in distress, because Israel at that time had a lot of enemies and there were a lot of battles. But it's, it's interesting because a lot of Asaph's psalms have a lament where he's lamenting for his people and the distress that they're under and the national, the national scope of their distress. But this psalm has a more personal feel. It almost feels like a journal entry where he's looking back at a time when he was feeling really stressed. But what I think is beautiful is that he didn't keep it to himself. Remember that this psalm was used for congregational worship so he shared what he was going through with the community for them to meditate on and learn from. Talk about vulnerability and leadership. <laughs> Way to go, Asaph. So he spends the first nine verses recalling what it looks like for him during that time of deep distress. 
And in verses 1 and 2, we see that he is crying out for God, to God for help, for him to hear him. He's reaching out untiring hands, and it says that he would not be comforted. And I love the ESV's translation of that part. He said, in the ESV, it says, my soul refused to be comforted. And I appreciate that personification of the soul because there are those times where I've been outside of myself and I can see my own anxiousness and I am just so frustrated that my soul will not cooperate with how I want to see things. It's like a stubborn child within me and it's just like it's refusing to cooperate with me. And in verse 3, he says, I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. He was so frustrated that even the thought of God felt like a thorn in a wound. It's like if you feel disconnected from someone or you're in an argument with them and then you come across a picture of them or someone mentions their name and it's like that, ugh, and you just think about how you're feeling disconnected from them at that moment. His spirit felt overwhelmed. And now he's too troubled to speak and he can't sleep. I picture him lying there unable to to just sleep and he's just got all these questions swirling in his mind. But he says in verse 5 that he thought about the former days, the years of long ago, and he remembered his songs in the night. It's, he's, remember, he's pausing and he's looking back at the way things used to be, the good old days when he was aware of how God, he could clearly see that God was at work in his life. And instead of having sleepless nights of anxiety, he was filled, if he was ever sleepless, it was because he was overflowing with joy and singing songs to God. In verse 6, it says that his heart meditated and his spirit asked. And it's worth pausing even just to note that he's asking his heart, that he's stopping to actually ask himself, what is really going on here? What's at the root of this? It's like he's asking out of frustration, what are you so afraid of? And then outflows the stream of aching questions in verses 7 to 9 that get at the root of his concern. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Will his un- has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? His questions reveal that at the root of it, he fears that God has turned against him. That fear that God's love has run out, his mercy and his compassion has run out for him. And then at the end of this section, right before he shifts his perspective, there's a small but significant word, and it may not be in your Bibles, but it's in the footnotes. And it's at the end of verse 3 and fi- 9 and 15. And it's the word sila. And that word is a word that means pause. It's like a breath. It, it's even like a, a musical interlude in the midst of the song that was meant for the congregation to actually just pause and look back and reflect on what they've just heard. And so it's this beautiful way for them to just reflect and to stop and think. There seems to be this invitation to actually sit with those questions and see what they reveal. Have you found yourself asking questions like this before? Maybe being afraid that God has forgotten you or that his love has run out? It might be easy to look at a list of questions like this 
that are sort of dramatic and think, well, of course God's love hasn't failed for all time. But if you're in the midst of a season of feeling and experiencing these kind of questions, that reality can be all-consuming. But Asaph makes a point not just to be honest with his feelings, but also to insert moments of rest into this psalm. Because slowing down to catch our breath is an important part of being able to look back and remember what's true. Pausing to remember who God is and what he's done gives us a new perspective to keep moving forward. Okay, so we're told in the description of this psalm that it's a psalm of Asaph. And we also look at this second part, and it talks about how now he's, he's willing himself to remember what is true. And though Asaph's memories are neatly woven together in this psalm that we can read, it's, I imagine that these thoughts and these feelings and these fears were not something that happened as quickly as it takes for us to read through this psalm. And it's almost like these moments, these Selah moments, are like a place for us to remember that it was written, that maybe these things happened slowly. And it almost like reflects time passing. We can quickly read through these questions to get to the more comfortable part of the psalm, but I think Asaph wanted to validate those moments of wrestling and questioning as part of the process. Because sometimes even simply saying questions out loud helps you to hear them and see them from a different perspective. You, when the questions are trapped inside, they feel bigger and more significant and sometimes scarier, even insurmountable. But when you say them out loud to yourself or to a friend, you can sort of step back and realize, hmm, maybe this isn't rooted in truth. Maybe, maybe this is actually a projection or an assumption or fear. So where does he go from here? Well, in verse 10, he says, Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. He's saying, I know that God has been faithful to his people in the past, and this is what I will hold up and review, that God's hand has been faithfully at work with them, and so I know that he will be again. Though he is still anguished by doubts, Asaph is determined to remember the goodness of God. In verse 11, he says, I will remember your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. And earlier in the psalm, when Asaph was meditating and remembering, it led him to a place of feeling anguished and frustrated. So what's the difference between this remembering and, and that remembering? Well, I think earlier that, that was a kind of nostalgia, a sort of looking back sentimentally longing for things to be the way that they were. But the thing about that is that it can sometimes feel like you're trying to squeeze the present into a box on the shelf of the past. And maybe it's time for him to make room for a new understanding of God and the way that he's at work in his life. So instead of staying in a place of focusing on his feelings, Asaph now shifts to meditating on God's mighty deeds. He declares, your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You perform miracles and you display your power among the people. And he's realizing that just because he doesn't feel God's presence doesn't mean that God is not there. He can hold on to the fact that God's ways are different. They are utterly different than what we could imagine or expect. 
And you can see that by, by verse 15, he's saying not just that his mighty hand is at work, but it says, with your mighty arm, you redeemed your people. Not just his hand, but his whole arm. And then we have another Selah. Another moment to look back and reflect on what he's already been thinking about. And maybe it was an opportunity for the congregation to stop and think for themselves about who God is to them and what they remember about their God. Because pausing to remember who God is and what he's done gives us a new perspective to keep moving forward. Asaph's circumstances probably didn't change, but his perspective did, and that can make a powerful difference. Take the anxious moment we were talking about with texting earlier. When you know, you know, when it takes 10 minutes, more than 10 minutes for someone to respond, and you're jumping immediately to the worst case scenario, thinking that they never want to talk to you again. But when you actually stop, you can get yourself out of that moment by stopping and thinking about, okay, what do I know about this person? I know that they love me, I know that they care about me, and it's probably not true that they hate me and never want to see me again. <laughs> and you can walk yourself through it. And maybe with driving, we do this. If we're we, we depend on our cars a lot and we're driving and maybe the gaslight goes on and you're in that one section of your drive where there are somehow no gas stations and you begin to panic and you're gripping the wheel and you're driving fast but not too fast because you want to run out of gas and you start freaking out and maybe sweating and you're like, I don't know if I'm going to make it, I, I, my car is going to break down and you're simultaneously planning all the alternate routes and figuring out how to get to the gas station as quickly as you possibly can. Maybe that's just me. I freak out sometimes when I get into those places. <laughs> but how do you get yourself out of that place? Well, sometimes I don't, and I arrive at the gas station, a sweaty hot mess, and I'm just sitting there realizing, okay, maybe I didn't need to freak out. Maybe next time I'll remember that my car is more dependable than I think it is, and I can make it to the gas station. When the light goes on, I have more time to get to the gas station than I thought I did. Thankfully, though, God is more faithful to us than our car, and especially if it's my car, because my car doesn't even have automatic windows. But he is far more dependable than a car, and he's far more dependable than human beings. Even our most favorite humans fail us, but God doesn't. Even when we can't see God, and even when we can't understand what he's doing, he is there faithfully loving us. And isn't that faith? Believing what we can't see? There's one final part to this psalm. And it's a story, a poetic description of one very important moment in the big story of God and his people. The first time I read this part of the psalm, I was... I felt like it was sort of random. What's with all the writhing water and the depths being convulsed and the pouring down rain and the whirlwind and all these things? And I thought it was kind of a random thing to add on at the end of the psalm. But I want to reread this again because I think there's a really important reason that Asaph references this story at the end. And actually, kids in the service, I am going to be looking to you to help me see if you can figure out what this story is from the Old Testament. In the Bible. So I'm going to read it again, and kids, I'm going to call on you afterwards and see if you can tell us what story this is. Okay. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. 
The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. There's a pretty big hint at the end there. Kids, what do you think? Which story is this referencing from the Old Testament, do you think? I taught a lot of you in Sunday school, so I know we acted this one out at some point. What do you think, kids? Any guesses? Novely? Your path through the sea. Being led by Moses and Aaron. <laughs> yes! Great job! Moses parting the sea. Well done, kids. <laughs> so this is the story of God parting the sea for the Israelites, for his people, to cross safely to the other side. We know the end of this story, but I think it's worth trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites to see this story unfolding as it would have with them, not knowing what the end of the story would be. And I'll read it. I'm just going to tell the story, but I'll tell it in the condensed Audrey version or the CAV. <laughs> if you will, um, because it's a story that extends over lots of chapters of Exodus. So I'll tell it in a shortened way. So God's people, the Israelites, have been in bondage as slaves for, to the Egyptians for years, and they're crying out to God, asking for God to hear them, to set them free, probably asking very similar questions to that of Asaph in this psalm. And God calls Moses to lead his people, and to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. And so there's a lot of arguing back and forth between Pharaoh and, and Moses. And Moses is saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, mm, no. How about now? Let my people go. Mm -mm, nope, not going to happen. And then there's all these super unfortunate plagues that happen. And then eventually, Pharaoh stops being stubborn, and he lets his people go. <laughs> yeah, stubborn Pharaoh. And... Finally, the people were free, free after years of being in slavery. God had heard their cries. And so all of the Israelites packed up their things and they started making an exodus towards their life of freedom, praising God all the way. And then they reached the shores of the Red Sea. And they stopped for a break and they stretch and they put their bags down and they get a snack, maybe have some figs. And then there's this rumble and the sound of hundreds of horse hooves coming behind them and they turn around and they look and they see that Pharaoh has changed his mind again and he's coming at them with hundreds of men on chariots with spears to attack them. And what's worse, they turn the other way and see that there's a giant sea in front of them and they can't go anywhere. There is no way forward. They're trapped. Panic! The Israelites, understandably, begin to cry out in fear. And I'm just going to read this part word for word because I think their ex exclamations are hilariously sassy and <laughs> dramatic. So this is from Exodus chapter 14. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to this desert to die? <laughs> what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in this desert. 
And it's, it might be easy to laugh at their response now, because again, we know the end of the story, but if I were there that day, I probably would have been saying something similar to this. There may not have been much time for them to stop and remember the fact that God just powerfully rescued them from Pharaoh, but they didn't think about that. <laughs> they might have been less, less panicked if they had. Moses' response is beautiful, though. He says, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. There's so many moments when I've needed to hear those words. You need only to be still. Maybe that was simply Moses' polite way of saying, calm it down. But <laughs> I think it was probably more an invitation to take a deep breath and pause and remember who their God is. Regardless, though, of whether or not any of them did anything right or wrong in the moment, God made a way through the sea. He made a path through the mighty waters, even though his footprints were not seen. Asaph ends the psalm with, You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Our good shepherd led his people like a flock. And they were walking, he made a way through the waters, not just a physical path for them to walk on, but also a way for them to walk forward in trust, knowing that if my God can do that, then he's big enough to do anything that I might face next. I can only imagine how considering this story gave Asaph a renewed perspective. This story has even more meaning for us because it points to another great rescue. Really, a great rescuer. Jesus. God knew that his people would forget. They would forget that he opened up a possibility that no one would have ever considered, and he creatively and powerfully provided a way for his people to move forward. But he knew that they would forget knew that no matter how many incredible wonders they did, they would still become fearful and forgetful. But that same God who made a way through the mighty waters is the God who sent Jesus, came down in the person of Jesus so that we could know him better, so that we could actually see his footprints as he walked with us and as he taught and loved people and encouraged them and healed them and transformed their lives. And then, even when Jesus was accused and arrested and hung on a cross to die, and no one saw a way forward, he opened up a possibility that no one would have ever considered. He creatively and powerfully provided for a way for his people to be fully free. While we were helpless and in need of rescue, Jesus demonstrated his unconditional love for us through the sacrifice, through his sacrifice on the cross, so that nothing, not heights or depths or sin or forgetfulness, not even death, can separate us from being able to be in relationship with Jesus. And he wants to walk forward with us into eternity. And then he gave us his spirit to guide us and keep us close to him and continue transforming his people so that we can love and forgive unconditionally like Jesus. Whenever I pause to think about that kind of act of love, 
it causes me to have those, those voices of fear sort of fade to the background. And it gives me hope and courage to take even one step in the direction towards walking forward in hope. Because pausing to remember who God is and what he's done gives us a new perspective to keep moving forward. The reality is, though, that we will still forget the big picture of God and what he's done and what it means for us. We'll forget that we've been forgiven and we'll hide from God and we'll feel like he's, we've disappointed him and we'll feel like, surely this time I've messed it up enough that he won't forgive me this time. And we'll forget that he's provided for us and that he, he promises to be with us no matter what and will become consumed with worry. But God is not surprised by our forgetfulness. His love and his faithfulness remains the same regardless of whether or not, of what we do or we don't do. But even still, we'd save ourselves a lot of stress if we could have it just, have those truths stick in our minds. So how do we remember to remember? Well, like Asaph, he looked back at the stories of God. And we can look back in scripture and we can see how God has been at work in his, in, in, in his great rescue plan throughout scripture. Maybe even go back through the Bible and make a list of his names and his characteristics, his attributes, to hold on to it when you're in a moment of stress. You can look back and see who God is. I actually got another idea from a member of our church, um, Wendy. I don't think she's here this morning, but if you haven't had a chance to meet Wendy, she is a delightful, beautiful woman. And you should definitely get to know her. Um, but we were talking after the service last week, and she came up to me and she told me that she was just having such an awful week the week before. But I loved, she was just beaming with joy, and she said, but Audrey, I was, I just, I'm so amazed that God has provided for me and he's put all these people in my life to give me these things that I needed when I least expected it. And she said it felt like a hug from God. And I love what she said next. She said, I gotta start writing these things down because I forget. <laughs> and I was like, me too, Wendy. But I think what an amazing gift that would be for us to write down how God is at work in your life in the little and the big ways, to keep record of those things, to look back when you're feeling like, where is God, and has he even been present in my life? And these are all things that we can do on our own. But in the beginning, God said that it wasn't good for us to be alone, that we need to be in community. And I think that's one of the biggest ways that we can remember, is by being with each other. Asaph didn't write these words and keep them to himself. Remember, he shared them with the congregation so that they could all learn from what he was going through and so that they could all remember and remind each other who God is. And when we are able to share the things that are going on, it can help us be able to celebrate together. And maybe it's difficult on Sunday mornings to come in, especially if you're coming from a place where it feels like things are falling apart and you feel like you have to pull yourself together and put on a happy face mask. And I've done that before. But I've also experienced being able to be open with people and share on a Sunday morning with people 
what I'm going through, and I've been met with people who have loved and prayed with me in that moment or even said, hey, do you want to go for a walk after church? It's a beautiful thing to be able to be in a community where you can open up and be able to share the ups and downs of life together, where we can love and we can encourage one another and we can remind each other and be there when one person is feeling like, every, like all of their faith is gone. Someone else can come alongside them and listen and support them and be there for them. Some of that happens on Sunday mornings, but a lot of it happens outside of Sunday mornings in small groups and at um, softball games and at women's and men's events outside of church or just going for a walk with a friend. Because it makes sense that we wouldn't want to be open with people that we only see for a few minutes on Sunday mornings. I know for me, my small group, the the women that I've been meeting with for um, lots of years, I have learned so much about the beauty of shared vulnerability. And just to paint a quick picture of that, I, we recently were able to celebrate with a woman in our Bible study who told us that she got a job. And that might not sound that exciting unless you've walked through the journey. When she first came to be with us, she was in tears. And consequently, throughout the rest of the months, we were wrestling with, she was crying out and wrestling with all of these questions of why did God let this happen? And why did this happen? And we sat with her and we cried with her and we were frustrated with her for months. And being able to hear that she now has a job where she can do what she loves to do and she's passionate about the work she's doing, we were, we were full of joy and able to celebrate with her. And I think that celebration was even more beautiful and even more joyful because of the place of sorrow that it came from. We rejoiced over the ways that God had been at work even when we couldn't see it in her life. Her story gave me hope, and it encourages me to remember that God is at work even when we can't see his footprints. And we can't seem, and there doesn't seem to be a pathway forward. Because pausing to remember who God is and what he's done gives us a new perspective to keep moving forward. So let's go from this place today, being the kind of church the kind of people that are willing to pause and recognize what's going on beneath the surface. Being able to ask for help to remember because we all need help remembering. (laughs) Maybe pausing to listen and be there to remind somebody else. And we're actually going to take a moment now to pause and actually practice a Selah moment a moment to pause and reflect on what God might be stirring. To be able to sit in a posture of listening with Jesus, to ask yourself maybe what has been stirring, or what is it that I need help remembering today, or what might be keeping me from moving forward. And we'll do it for just a few moments, which whenever we do things like this, I always feel like it's not enough time. <laughs> but... I encourage you that if God is stirring something in you today, maybe go for a walk and talk to him after the service or grab somebody if you need, if you want to process or pray with someone or grab someone with a white name tag and we'd be happy to pray with you after the service. But let's at least start just by practicing with a posture of, of listening to hear what God might be teaching us today before we continue in worship. So we'll just pray for a few moments and then I'll close us.
Lord Jesus, thank you for speaking to us this morning. Thank you that you are faithful no matter what we do or we don't do. I pray that you would help us to remind one another to remember your faithfulness, to remember who you are, that we would take time by ourselves and with others to remember that you are good and that you are with us and that you are bigger than the waves that we might face. Thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.